Tonight we're going to talk about the birth of Jesus, or at least one aspect of it. And I want to start with a question. What do you want from your king? What do you want from the, who you think of as being the king, or a king that you might want to follow? On uh, July 12th, 100 BC, a man by the name of Gaius Julius Caesar was born to a patrician family in Rome. So the the uh, the Gens Julia, Gens Julia, sorry, family had been living in Rome according to their own history for about 500 years by this time, and uh, they were a patrician family, which meant that they uh, were a part of the ruling class. They were fairly active in the Roman government at the time. At that time, Rome was not an empire, it was a republic. And the difference uh, we'll get to there in a minute. But uh, Julius grew up in this family that claimed descent from the goddess Venus. Now, I don't know exactly what grounds they had to say that they were descended from the gods, but as a result of that claim, they had some measure of... Uh, authority to claim that they were, in principle at least, divine, this family. So Julius Caesar um, is growing up in this Republic of Rome, and one of the ways that Rome, uh, one of the reasons Rome was a republic was because they uh, were ruled by a senate and a, uh, I don't remember the exact name of the leader of the senate, but it was essentially a, a main leadership position, whereas, like here in the United States, we have four-year presidential terms. They had two men that were appointed to lead that took turns in one-year increments. And my understanding is the reason for this is to keep the balance of power from shifting too far one way or the other. Well, as Julius was growing up, he enters into the, uh, the government, into the praetorium, he becomes a Roman senator, and he becomes a general. And uh, Julius Caesar goes into Europe as a general. He was in his, I want to say he was in his 30s at the time. And he becomes a fairly successful general in battle. He goes all the way into the island of what was then Britannia, or Great Britain currently today. And he fights a number of battles along up in the European front and is hindered back in Rome by the fact that he is um, at odds with the current ruler of the time, or one of the main rulers of the Senate, a man by the name of Pompey. Now, if you remember from last time, General Pompey was the one who uh, eventually captured the Judean province uh, from the hands of the Maccabees, the Jews who were ruling there at the temple at the time. So Pompey was a prominent figure in the U.S. in the U.S. in the <laughs> Roman Senate, and he was under pressure from a number of senators to do something about this errant general named Julius, or Gaius Julius Caesar at the time. And so he orders Julius Caesar to come back to Rome and essentially settle down and behave himself. And he sends out this summons to Julius Caesar, and Julius Caesar says, essentially, forget you. And he crosses the Rubicon River, that's where the term crossing the Rubicon comes from, and with his army and marches on Rome. And he decides that he has other plans for the Roman Empire, or for the Roman Republic at the time. So in 49 BC, Julius Caesar crosses the Rubicon. He enters into Rome with his army and 
begins to wage war against the Roman government at the time. What Julius Caesar was interested in was not maintaining a republic. Caesar wanted to create an empire. And he believed that the way to create that empire was to essentially do away with the dual uh, leadership of the Roman Republic and turn it into something resembling a dictatorship or monarchy. Convenient enough for him, with him at the head, claiming to be not just king, but God. And he had this claim on the whole God thing because his family was supposedly descended from the goddess Venus. So Julius Caesar becomes king in um, Rome for the next about five years until 44 BC. And he is assassinated by two conservative Roman senators named Cassius and Brutus. And so for those of you who had to uh, study Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, is it? In school, that's where the... Uh, that's where uh, those two names might sound familiar. Actually, when I was in school, we had to memorize Mark Antony's speech. Friends, Romans, countrymen, love me your ears. That one, yeah. Uh, this, these are. This is the. That's the situation. This is the situation that that uh, that uh, play was written about. So Julius Caesar was Caesar for only a short time, but he was. One thing that was different about him is that he claimed to be God. And he actually erected a number of altars and temple-like structures in Rome and in the surrounding areas where people could come and worship him. When he died, uh, or when he was assassinated in the Roman Senate, it was written in his will that his great nephew, a man by the name of Octavian, was supposed to succeed him as ruler whenever he passed on. So Octavian was actually... Uh, an adopted son of Julius Caesar, and Octavian and his friend Mark Antony, who, by the way, stood up for Caesar over the time that he was assassinated, raise an army because they recognize that there's no way that Octavian is going to be able to continue what Julius Caesar has started unless they fight for it. So Brutus and Cassius fled into the east over toward Asia, and Mark Antony and Octavian begin to raise an army. And a number of years later, they meet at a place called Philippi, which is uh, the recipient of the Book of Philippians. There's a large hill there called the Acropolis, um, and uh, there's kind of a, there's a, there was a main Roman road that ran through there for some hundreds of miles. It's actually the road that Paul is going to follow on his first missionary journey out of Antioch. And the two armies met there, and uh, there's a couple of low hills outside the town of Philippi, and uh, Cassius and Brutus and their men occupied the town. So they had the fortified city, and Mark Antony and Octavian bring their armies and essentially set up one on each hill. And they were badly outnumbered by Brutus and Cassius. Remember, Brutus and Cassius are the conservatives in the Roman Senate. They and the people like them are trying to keep the Roman Republic from becoming an empire or a dictatorship. And they were actually willing to sacrifice the eventual glory of the Roman Empire so that they would have a more, what was in their eyes, fair form of government. And so they meet there in Philippi, which is named after the father of Alexander the Great, and uh, begin to fight. And Brutus, or Cassius, I forget exactly which one it was, uh, unwisely bring their army outside the city walls 
and come out and attack the encampment on this hill where Octavian is camped. And uh, Mark Anthony brings his forces around the side, he flanks them, and they begin uh, a rout. And Cassius sees what's going on, realizes that things aren't going to go too well, and he committed suicide. Mark Antony and Octavian were successful. They returned to Rome and then began promptly to fight each other. And there was another war in Rome over who was going to become the eventual victor. Mark Antony uh, obviously loses. This is the war in which Herod the Great aligns himself with Mark Antony and this person you may have heard of in, in Egypt called Cleopatra. And uh, Octavian is successful. He chases Mark Antony out of Rome. Mark Antony goes down into Egypt and I believe gets a hold of Cleopatra and together they commit suicide. And so now Octavian, with all of his forces out of the way, becomes Caesar Augustus, or Augustus Caesar. There's a statue of him there. And he, in like manner of his adopted father, proclaims himself to be son of the gods, bringer of peace to the world. Octavian is considered really to be the founder of the Roman Empire because he is the one that sort of united a number of the outlying areas, including Palestine, under his rule, and he became world emperor. He's a very powerful figure. He had a gospel. They actually use that word, gospel, which was the good news that Augustus Caesar is God. And that's what they believed. And he, like Julius Caesar, uh, set up altars and temples throughout the Roman Empire where people could come and sacrifice to Caesar. That brings us to Luke chapter 2, verse 1. Now it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus. That's pretty funny. Anyway, there it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus, a real man and warrior. He built his empire on the backs of those who opposed him. He was so powerful that even Herod the Great, who we talked about last week, bowed to him and asked for forgiveness. What do you want from your king? Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. This is prophesied of the eventual Messiah. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Compare that message with a coin that you find during the time of Jesus. When Jesus was uh, asked this question of whether or not his disciples should pay taxes, and he said, bring me a denarius. Well, if you look at a denarius from the time of Jesus, it has the picture of the emperor of Rome at the time, a man by the name of Tiberius Caesar. And he was actually the man that was the emperor in Rome during the time that Jesus began his ministry. On that coin, that silver denarius, it's an inscription of Tiberius Caesar, and it says, son of the divine Augustus in Latin on the back of that coin, along with a, an engraving of the uh, Roman goddess of peace. The idea there is that the current ruler of Rome was the son of Augustus, who was God, bringer of peace. 
And it is in, it is in that world that Jesus is born. Now remember, their world was much smaller than what yours and eyes is today. How many of you read the news? Sometime this week, you looked at headlines. How about Facebook? Ah, I tricked you. <laughs> My point is that we have a large scope of influence in our lives. If you want to find out what happened in Baghdad today, you can't. But they lived their lives only with what they saw around them. So their worlds were much smaller. And Caesar Augustus proclaims himself to be bringer of peace, tells the world that he is God and king, and all the evidence is there to prove him right. If you look at who is doing well, who's successful, and who's thriving, and who's flourishing in the world, it's not the Jews. It's not the peasant farmers and shepherds from Bethlehem. It's not... It's the Romans. It's in this world that we come to Luke chapter 1. To a woman named Mary. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So what I'm going to do now is begin to go into the story of uh, the birth of Jesus, and I want to point out some cultural context and uh, set the stage for what I want to bring it together with at the end of the lesson. So that's what we're going to do now. Let's talk about Mary for a bit. Mary was uh, possibly around 15 years old. She is waiting for her betrothed husband to finish building their home. And so I'm sure this is familiar to many of you, but the way they did marriages back then in those days was you had uh, a man like Joseph, but we don't know exactly how old he was. He would, he or his father would uh, find a woman or a maiden, or a, in this case, the word that's used is virgin, which means young lady, to be his wife. And they would go to the father of this young lady and they would sit down and they would hammer out a contract and then they would have a betrothal ceremony. Now this was not a marriage, but this was more than just a, yes, I'll marry you. It was the beginning of a covenant that was being made. And then Joseph, in this case, or the, the bride, the, the, uh, the man called the bridegroom, would go home and prepare a place for he and his wife to live. Now often that place was, believe it or not, a room added on to mom and dad's house. So gentlemen, it's not that difficult. You don't need your own place. You just need an addition to, the, to your current place of residence, at least the one after you leave Mountain View. <laughs> I can just see the guy's door like, popping off. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> it's a great place to work. Don't forget that. Um, so it's likely in this time that the angel Gabriel comes to Mary. So she's committed. She knows she's going to be married. She has uh, drunk the cup that they would drink in the making of this covenant. And she's essentially sitting at home, waiting for the day when Joseph is going to come back for her. And uh, you, by the way, you didn't necessarily know when this was going to happen. You would just go home. And then someday, you would hear a commotion outside the walls of your little village and you would see a procession begin to come into the streets of your town, and you would look and see that, oh, okay, that's the neighbor's betrothed husband, or maybe it's yours, 
and now it's your turn. And the bridegroom would come with his friends and his family and all of those things. And he would come up to the door of the house where his bride was and bring her out. And they would engage in the marriage ceremony. So it's not like they actually planned a date, as far as I know. So she, anyway, Mary's in this time period where she's waiting for her betrothed husband to finish preparing their home for marriage. The end of Gabriel comes to her. And uh, let's read down through some of this. I'm going to read a number of verses here from Luke chapter 1. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail thou that art, thou that art highly flavored. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there's a joke behind this. So a friend of mine, um, I did not try that, by the way. So a friend of mine went to El Salvador to have some work done on his teeth. And he was, he, he got... Uh, put out with anesthesia for the surgery and when he woke up this is a real goofball when he woke up the surgeon asked how are you feeling and he said i'm richly dressed and highly flavored <laughs> that's, serious. that's what he said anyway let's keep going here and try to get this right hail thou that art highly favored the lord is with thee blessed art thou among women and when she saw him she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be and the angel said unto her Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for with God nothing shall be impossible. Let's look at some of the things that are happening here. Gabriel's message is essentially this, to this we don't know how old she was. We don't know what kind of support system she had. We don't know how well she was connected to her family and her community. All we know is that she was preparing to be married. Gabriel comes to her and says, You are blessed, and God is with you. You will conceive and give birth to the Son of God. Now, Scripture does not record necessarily how she felt about that. There's a couple of things here that I want to point out. Notice that God did not ask Mary's permission to do this. She did not choose her path. And this is important because her response is going to play into this later. She did not choose her path. This was the path that came for her. And she had some questions for God. There's three, inter there's kind of like three separate interactions happening here. Two or three. And the first thing her first reaction when Gabriel begins to talk to her is, says she was troubled. And she's processing this, and she's trying to figure out what's going on. Why is the angel talking to me like this? And then, as Gabriel goes on to explain what's going to happen to her, again, not asking her permission. God's coming to this young, single woman and saying, you're going to have a baby. And she naturally asks, uh, okay, how, is this, how are we planning for this to happen? And Gabriel goes on to explain. She has her questions. She has her doubts. 
And it doesn't say that she had a choice. I don't want to paint God in a harsh light by asking or by bringing that point up. But I ask the question again, what do you want from your king? I'll tell you what we generally want from our kings. We want prosperity and happiness. We want choice and the freedom to have things the way we want them. We want answers and assurance that life now as well as life in the future is going to be comfortable and prosperous and how I want it. That's generally what we want from our kings, isn't it? And God isn't really offering that to Mary, is this? Is he? Her future has been forever altered outside of her control. And Simeon, later on at the temple when Jesus was being circumcised, tells her that a sword is going to pierce her heart. And as far as we know, she was with Jesus at the beginning of his earthly ministry all the way up to the very end. And she saw everything that he experienced and went through. God comes to Mary and says, your life is going to get turned upside down. She doesn't have a choice. And she responds with one of the most powerful statements, I believe, in all of human history. Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. Essentially what Mary says to God, which to Gabriel here is, I belong to God. I accept what you have for me. Now this is not an easy path. There's no promise of prosperity. There's no promise of security. There's no promise that things are going to turn out well for her. As a matter of fact, imagine you trying to explain to your community how you suddenly ended up pregnant. Because believe you me, they didn't look at it any more favorably back then than we do today. And yet, her response to God's will for her life, to the path that God had called her to walk, was whatever you want. The Catholic Church and other faiths have revered Mary, worshipped her, called her divine, and I don't think that's accurate. But I do think she stands at the head of those who surrender themselves to God for her response to the call that God had on her life. Next we come to Bethlehem. The city of Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, has been, I wouldn't say prominent in Jewish history. It's been notable in Jewish history up until this time. So this is a small town, it's not large. It is located um, only about 10 miles from Jerusalem and is notable for several reasons. One, this is where Jacob buried Rachel when he was on his way from Shechem to Bethel after she died in childbirth, giving birth to Benjamin. Rachel was buried here. Uh, a man by the name of Boaz is from the town of Bethlehem and marries his wife Ruth and cares for her and her mother-in-law Naomi here. David was likely born here. He lived at Bethlehem. He tended his flocks on the fields and hills around the town before he was anointed by Samuel. And most notably, Micah prophesied that Bethlehem would be the birthplace of Messiah. So much so that when Herod asked the rulers of the Jews where Messiah was to be born, they pointed him to the prophecy in Micah chapter 5 that said that Bethlehem is the place where the ruler would come from. How would you imagine that the king is going to be born? 
So we've had about 2,000 years to set some traditions and thoughts and ideas in our minds about how this happened. And we're going to try to step outside of that and look at it for what the scripture says. Now I'm going to give you my idea, or not my ideas, but from what my, from what my research has shown me what, uh, what happened or how this, how this looked. But we're going to start by reading in Luke chapter 2. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. What are some observations about what is happening so far? Bethlehem was likely overrun with travelers during the census. We don't know exactly. Um, Luke 2 says that Caesar Augustus proclaims that the world should be taxed. I don't know if the translation of the world world is completely accurate, if this was the entire Roman Empire, if this was just the Judean province. We don't really know. Either way, Luke tells us that Joseph and Mary needed to go back to Bethlehem to be counted for the census. So Bethlehem was likely a very busy place at the time. We get the idea from the Christmas story, or from our traditions, that you know Joseph and Mary are, you know, hawkling on this donkey towards Bethlehem, and it's getting dark, and stuff's starting to hurt, and she's starting to holler, and like he goes up into the city, and bang, bang, bangs on the door of the motel, and there's no room, and they ship him off to a cave or to a stable somewhere, and you know Joseph frantically does his thing, and Mary does hers, and voila, we get the baby Jesus, and. That's really not what the text says. I think it's much more likely that Mary and Joseph lived in Bethlehem for some time before Jesus was born. The reason I say that is because of what the text says. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. Likely what happened is something like this. Joseph and Mary were probably living in Bethlehem for some time before Jesus was born. The inn was not a public lodging place. So there's two words for inn that are used in the book of Luke, specifically. One is uh, the way that it's translated in the story of the Good Samaritan, where he puts, picks the man up on his donkey and takes him to the inn and tells the innkeeper to take care of him. That's one word. That is not the word that is used here. The word that is used here in uh, Luke 2 is katalima, and it is better translated guest room. So when Jesus sends his disciples in Luke 22 into the city of Jerusalem, he tells them, go find a man carrying a pitcher of water and ask him, where is the guest room prepared that I may have Passover with my disciples? That word guest room is katalima, which is the same word that's used here in Luke 2. So let me show you what the typical Middle Eastern house would have looked like in those days. So this is the view from the top. Um, and by the way, this is how a number of houses in the Middle East and some houses around the world in poorer countries still look today. When I was in Tibet, I saw houses that were very similar to this. You had a one-room house here. This, uh, that was the main room. This is where everything happened. You ate here. You slept here. You congregated here. It was a one-room house. Jesus in Matthew 5 says... If you have a candle, you uncover it, and it gives light to all that are in the house, meaning that that one candle lit up the entire house. 
That's because their houses were likely just one room, or at least the living space they used was one room. They might have had a guest room off the side of the house, which was something like this, which was a place for them to put overflow guests. They also had stables that were attached to the house, something like this. And uh, essentially the way this worked is you would have a door here into your stable. Now this is not where your animals lived all the time. This is where you brought them at night. So when I was in Tibet, we went into houses that were exactly like this. You walk into the house through the barn, except it wasn't a barn, it was just part of the house. And when it was nasty outside or when it was dark, that's where you brought your animals. During the day, you would lead your animal out and you would send him out into the pasture or whatever. And you would sweep out that place, often the uh, Often it was maybe a step down into the stable, something like that. <clears throat> and the floor might have sloped towards the outside of the house so that you could easily sweep it out in the morning when you took your animals out. And then that room was living space for you during the day. At night, you could bring your uh, animals back inside and everything would be just fine. Often they had mangers either built into the wall here or if you had sheep. <coughs> they would put them a low stone manger on the floor to feed them during the night. Now, according to my research, it was not uncommon in pretty recent Middle Eastern history for them to have houses like this. And for some of the scholars who were living there would read passages like to Luke 2, and to them it was obvious. Now, we have changed that quite a bit in our view of Christmas, haven't we? Is this accurate? I don't know exactly for sure, but I think it's probably much more likely <clears throat> that Jesus was born in something like this. <coughs> so contrary to popular tradition, <clears throat> they probably did not arrive late to Bethlehem just in time. It's unlikely that Joseph knocked on the door of a hotel or what we think of as a commercial lodging place and was turned away. Likely, Joseph and Mary were sleeping in the stable of a house because there was no more room for them in the inn, Catalima, their guest room at the back of the house, and so they were sleeping in the front room. And Jesus was probably born <coughs> in the main room of the house, being attended to by the midwife of the town and the ladies who were around to help. And they would have seen a clean manger filled with hay as being a perfectly legitimate place to lay a newborn baby. <clears throat> Why does it matter? Well, let's keep going. Next part of the story. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Shepherds. Who were they? And why did they get to hear the news first? <clears throat> so shepherds were generally low-class citizens. <coughs> Sometimes it was a job for young women, as you see in the case of Rebecca, the wife of Isaac. She was tending her father's sheep. Or Moses found his wife among the shepherds. But uh, the Mishnah declared, so the Mishnah, if you remember, was the oral traditions that were handed down that would be compiled a few hundred years after the death of Christ uh, into a book called the Mishnah. But the Mishnah stated that flocks and herds were to be kept in the wilderness and only in the wilderness. On a normal town in Bethlehem or in uh, Judea, you would not have had flocks camped close to the town. 
that was considered to be a, uh, an inappropriate place for you to watch over your livestock. So what about the flocks here at Bethlehem? There was an exception to the rule. Remember, they're only about 10 miles from Jerusalem. And the exception was that flocks that were being raised for sacrifice at the temple could be raised locally. And Bethlehem was one of the towns where they raised the temple flocks. They actually had a tower built outside the town of Bethlehem where a shepherd would go up into the tower to keep watch over the flock. <clears throat> and so when it says they were keeping watch over their flock by night, that's likely exactly what they were doing. Now, we don't know exactly who these shepherds were. <coughs> it's possible that they were Levites who were out here shepherding the sheep that were going to be used for sacrifices at the temple in the coming months. <clears throat> what did these people know of a king? Again, put yourself in their shoes. What does a shepherd know of a king? Now, the king is those temple leaders who are in league with Herod, who are demanding perfection. The king is Caesar Augustus in Rome, who proclaims himself to be the god and the bringer of peace. The king is the one who's making life hard for us. <coughs> the king, even at the temple, had no room for outcasts and sinners because everything had to be just right in order to please them. What did they see in the stable? What did the shepherds see in the stable? And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, and found Mary, and Joseph, and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. What did they see in the stable? Instead of rejection, they found a baby that looked and smelled like one of them. They discovered that the kingdom of heaven was for people like them. And it turned them into rejoicing. <clears throat> Caesar built his kingdom on those who, on the backs and blood of those who opposed him. Jesus began his kingdom in a small town under the shadow of Herod's palace. He was welcomed by shepherds from the temple flocks. He would later call himself a shepherd, and still later he would take the place of the sheep that were being raised by those shepherds who came to see him the night before. What do you want from your king? Caesar Augustus left monuments that you can go and see today. He left altars. He left statues, he left coins, but that was it. Jesus came for those who had nowhere else to turn. Not for the mighty and powerful who had it all together, but for the lost sheep that had nowhere else to turn. And I want to close with reading a portion of an essay for you by Brennan Manning called Shipwrecked at the Stable. The shipwrecked at the stable kneel in the presence of mystery. 
God entered into our world not with the crushing impact of, un of unbearable glory, but in the way of weakness, vulnerability, and need. <clears throat> On a wintry night in an obscure cave, the infant Jesus was a humble, naked, helpless God who allowed us to get close to him. We all know how difficult it is to receive anything from someone who has all the answers, who is completely cool, utter utterly unafraid, needing nothing, and in control of every situation. We feel unnecessary, unrelated to this paradigm. So God comes as a newborn baby, giving us a chance to love him, making us feel that we have something to give him. <clears throat> the world does not understand vulnerability. Neediness is rejected as incompetence, and compassion is dismissed as unprofitable. The Bethlehem mystery will ever be a scandal to aspiring disciples who seek a triumphant savior in a prosperity gospel. The infant Jesus was born in, in unimpressive circumstances. His parents were of no social significance whatsoever, and his chosen welcome committee were all turkeys, losers, and dirt poor shepherds. But in this weakness and poverty, the shipwrecked at the stable would come to know the love of God. The shipwrecked at the stable are the poor in spirit who feel lost in the cosmos, adrift on an open sea, clinging with a life and death desperation to one solitary plank. Finally, they are washed ashore and make their way to the stable, stripped of the old spirit of possessiveness in regard to anything. They have been saved, rescued, delivered from the waters of death, set free for a new shot at life. At the stable, in a blinding moment of truth, they make the stunning discovery that Jesus is the plank of salvation they have been clinging to without knowing it. All the time, they were battered by wind and rain, buffeted by raging seas. They were being held even when they didn't know who was holding them. Their exposure to spiritual, emotional, and physical deprivation has weaned them from themselves and made them re-examine all they once thought important. The shipwrecked come to the stable seeking not to possess, but to be possessed, wanting not peace or a religious high, but Jesus Christ. The shipwrecked have stood, still at the, have stood at the still point of the turning world and discovered that the human heart is made for Jesus Christ and cannot really be content with less. They cannot take seriously the demands that the world makes on them. During Advent, they teach us that the more we try to tame and reduce desire, the more we deceive and distort ourselves. We are made for Christ, and nothing less will ever satisfy us. There is only Christ, and he is everything. <clears throat> when the final curtain falls, each one of us will be the sum of our choices throughout life. The sum of the appointments we kept and the appointments we didn't keep. The glory of the shipwreck will be that they habitually failed to turn up for duty. In their defense, they claimed they were detained by a baby in swaddling clothes. When interrogated as to why they hung out at the stable, they answered, we did it for love. I love this essay, Shipwrecked at the Stable, are the ones are so overcome by the child that they can see nothing else by a God who came not as a king but as one of us pick up the story on Thursday yes.